0: Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC Terms and Conditions apply.
1: You're kind of all mucked up. You're getting all intimate with your customer base. You're thinking a lot. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm putting
2: stuff directly on their butts and seeing how their face changes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Amy Baxter is a doctor, a pediatric emergency physician to be precise. And as you may have guessed, given our subject matter, she's a businesswoman. She's the founder and CEO of Pain Care Labs, a medical device company that offers non-invasive, drug-free pain relief. And that may not seem like a very complicated thing, but consider this. Our country is dealing with a pain management disaster. The opioid crisis alone is killing more than 100 Americans a day. And Amy came up with this other way to relieve pain that is non-addictive, non-invasive. And this brilliant insight, she came up with it sort of accidentally. This is The Passion Economy. I'm Adam Davidson, and in every episode, I talk to regular people who have figured out how to thrive in this new and sometimes terrifying and always confusing economy. We do this in every episode in three parts. Part one, we get their background. What makes these people who they are? Part two, we get deep into the business they run today. And part three, the most important part, I think, we pick their story apart, looking for tips and tricks we can use in our own lives and businesses. All right, look, Amy, she made some real mistakes getting her business off the ground. She also accidentally stumbled into some incredible successes. Those mistakes and successes helped me rethink some of my ideas about how to succeed in this new economy. But most of all, what we learned from Amy is you can have a brilliant invention, something that truly could change the world. But running a business takes more than just having a really good idea. In Amy's case, it takes a whole bunch of trial and error. So let's get into it, starting with her background.
2: I grew up in Lexington, Kentucky. I got adopted by a science fiction author, so that kind of cemented my interest in space and science. Adopted? Yeah. I wrote Robert Heinlein, who is an author of Stranger in a Strange Land, and most notably Have Space That Will Travel, which is what I read first. And I decided that they were really lacking in grandchildren, and I could solve that lack in their lives. So I wrote a fan letter saying, hey, adopt me. And they did.
1: Really? Uh, How did your parents feel about this?
2: My parents were fine. The real interesting question is, how did my grandparents, (laughs) whose position in my life had been usurped, how did they feel? You know, I, I think that it didn't really become obvious what an impact it was on the trajectory of my life until I was already an adult. So... That's really what changed my perception on what's important in life, what matters, what you keep with you. The Heinleins left all their money to a prize to promote commercial spaceflight. So this understanding that at the end of your life, what matters is how you've been able to elevate humanity, what fulcrum you pick and how big your lever is and how much you're able to change the human condition. That came from my high school 11-year-old writing my hero. And when your hero adopts you when you're 12, it does change the way you
1: live your life. And what could change the human condition more than eliminating pain? When I first heard about Amy, I wasn't sure she was right for this show. This show is about regular people, people any listener can relate to. And Amy is a doctor. Doctors have advanced degrees, they can make a fortune. But the more I learned about Amy, the more I realized she really does have a relatable, inspiring story. When she was growing up, her family did not have money. And when you don't have money,
2: I had a very powerful passion for having money in my pocket. When I went to college, I knew I had to work to make pocket money, so to speak. And so it was always a lot easier for me to sell things than to seek out other sources of revenue. So I went to Dartmouth first, and I actually got a job right off the bat selling jewelry to people, college rings and things. And then when I went to Yale, they had a school supplies monopoly called the Yale co-op. And I thought it'd be cool to undermine them and make a student business, which had all sorts of legal protections and called it the low op for low priced school supplies options. And I had the benefit of having a car. So I would drive to Staples and I would buy up a bunch of school supplies and then I would bring them back and sell them in the commons area in front of the Yale co-op, you know, and undercut them by crazy amounts because my margins were based on buying cheap stuff at Staples, and they had a captive populace in the student community.
1: So Amy is a business person. That's who she is. That's who she's always been and who she's going to be when she graduates college. But then this sort of weird thing that could have been small but ended up changing her life happened. She was going to Dartmouth where fraternities are co-ed, and she was in the kitchen with another student who suddenly passes out and blood is coming out of his hand. Amy jumps into action. She rests him down in a better way. She knows to apply pressure to his cut on his hand. She's directing other students, telling them, okay, let's lift him up. Let's bring him somewhere comfortable. She's in control. She's in charge of the situation. Turns out he has this fairly common condition. He got a cut, made his blood pressure fall, and so he passed out. But Amy really liked the feeling of Knowing how to handle an emergency, a medical emergency, being in charge of everyone else. And in that instant, her business dreams fall away. She's going to be a doctor. She's going to do this for a living. And that's what she focuses on, at least for the next several years.
2: But once I got into the practice of pediatrics, I still had this orientation to avoiding waste And so the poverty, the lack of money that I grew up with, this orientation to needing to feel secure with money that also fed into not wanting to waste anything. And it wasn't just monetary. It was any kind of waste. If we have a population of kids who's feeling pain and we could stop it, but we're causing them to suffer unnecessarily, that's a kind of waste. That's kind of the path that took me to the place of wanting to reduce suffering and change humanity in a bigger way rather than an individual one-at-a-time physician way.
1: how did she make this transition from physician to physician plus business person? Actually, the answer comes from that annoying pain you get when you get a shot at the doctors. Amy was not just a pediatric emergency physician. She was one of the leading researchers in that specific pain, the pain you feel when you get injected with a needle from a syringe.
2: When my own son had to have his vaccines, I was arguably one of the top 10 gurus in reducing pediatric needle pain, and so I was ready to roll. I was like, here's the distraction, and here's the topical anesthetic, and he's all prepared perfectly but not too prepared, and he's not anxious, and so all of this preparation completely went by the wayside when the nurse said, that stuff doesn't work. You just need to sit there and be still, and this is really going to hurt. And Mind you, these are for the booster shots. So he was four. He got so traumatized by having the nurse jam in the shots where he was not numbed. And I didn't get to use any of the distraction, which can reduce pain by half. And he had fear now, which ramps up pain about 80%. So all of these different factors, he ended up getting so afraid of needles that he would vomit anytime he had to go to the doctor.
1: Now, at first you might think, what I thought. Okay, so her son doesn't like needles. My son doesn't like needles. Do any kids like needles? What is the big deal? It's part of life. When you're a kid, you get shots.
2: It's increased 250 percent. So 63 percent of children born in the year 2000 or later are afraid of needles. The reason kids are afraid of needles is because of the number they get on the same day during the booster period. So before 1982, no one got boosters when they were old enough to remember. because yeah, I did not do any. Well, we didn't do them. We assume we did. That's the thing. We assume that we are just so cool that we didn't feel the same kind of anxiety. And so maybe it's bad parenting. Maybe it's reality television. Maybe it's iPads. But there's this perception that kids are coddled or weak, and that's why they're afraid of needles. It's totally conditioning. Before 1982, unless you had some medical issue, you didn't get more than two shots on the same day, and you didn't get them at all when you were old enough to remember. So wow. all of our vaccines, we got six, we got them before we were two. Wow. We started doing boosters because we learned that immunity starts to wane, but boosters can be given anytime between age four and six. So I mean, we the could CDC, do one a day
1: for every six months or something. And
2: it turns out if you get one shot every time you go to the doctor between age four and six, none of those kids were afraid of needles. They got resilient. If you got two, 9%, three, it was 26%. But the kids that got four or five injections on the same day, 50% of them were in the highest quartile of fear wow. when they were like five years later. And then I followed them and they're two and a half times less likely to start their HPV vaccines. Wow. So we have a whole generation that we have conditioned
1: to be extraordinarily afraid of needles. Wow, you're blowing my mind and making me feel so Nobody sad this. for I my little boy. I mean, I, and, I did it to my kid. <laughs> and his pediatrician, who's a great pediatrician, like he has this whole system where he sets up the four needles and then he like does them really fast, as fast as humanly possible, but it still is unbearable. And you're exactly right that I just had in my head, well, I guess I was a little more rugged than my son. Right,
2: right. You did not have that happen to you. I just didn't have
1: that happen to me.
2: This is going to be a really big issue, particularly because – Around the time that I found that 63%, Anna Tadio, who's a researcher in Toronto, she published a 64% incidence of fear. Same thing, kids born in 2000. And the critical part was that she also interviewed their parents and the people who were afraid of needles, 8% of them said they weren't going to vaccinate their kids fully. Wow. So that's what scares me yeah, is I know true. we've set up our own kids to be afraid of needles. When they start procreating, what if that 8% holds true? Because then we've completely blown our community immunity. And then we've got this whole host of issues because we have left these kids afraid of needles, pushed them out into adulthood, and then they it starts influencing the way they make decisions.
1: Amy decides she has to fix this problem. It's not a business concept yet. She just wants her poor little boy to stop throwing up at the doctor's office. And she realizes she may be literally the only person on earth who can address this particular challenge.
2: You know, there's got to be a simple way to do this. I mean, when you burn your finger, you stick it under cold water, and it's the same pain nerve for burns or needles or surgery or injury. It's all the same alarm system nerve. So I started playing around, and none of it really worked, so I kind of gave up until about a year and a half later when I was driving home from the emergency room, and I'd seen a lot of children that night crying about the needle pain and IVs, and so I was thinking about it, and my hands were vibrating on our steering wheel because the tires weren't balanced, and who has time to take care of all that? But when I reached for the door of my house, my hand was numb, and that was when I just immediately thought, ah, I don't need running water. I need vibration because this motion has numbed my hands. And so if I can just use motion, I can block the pain of a needle. So I rushed into the house and got this little yellow and black massager. So I used that on my kids' arms, trying to leave marks on their hands and approximate what a needle would feel like. They could still feel it. So I was ready to give up and say, oh, well, that didn't work either. And my husband, the Boy Scout, said, you know, in the Scouts, we put frozen peas on things that hurt. Again, changing the way the brain feels pain instead of blocking pain. So adding the brain changer cold with the nerve changer vibration together. So I put the little massager on top of the peas on top of their arm and I could leave marks on the back of their hands and they couldn't feel it at all.
1: Now, remember, Dr. Baxter, Amy, is not just a mom with a kid who hates needles. She's an expert pain researcher who knows how our body processes pain and a whole toolkit of ways we can ameliorate that pain. So the basic theory behind the device Amy eventually comes up with is something scientists call gait control. Like she said, it's the reason we run a burn under cold water or we rub our elbow when we bump it. Basically what's happening is our nerves are sending pain signals to our brain, and we can distract those nerves by giving them something else to feel, like vibration or cold. Cold goes up to the area of the
2: brain that processes pain, But cold is something called a noxious stimuli. It's annoying, but it's not dangerous. So the central part of your brain is actually really good at squishing down pain. It says, you know what? I'm feeling this cold. I don't like it, but it's not dangerous. I'm going to inhibit this signal. I'm going to turn down the volume on this signal. And cold and pain are processed in the same place. So when the brain turns down the signal... It's not just turning down the ice signal. It's turning down the pain signal.
1: So after some research, she's cracked it. She's figured out how to prevent kids from feeling the pain of a shot. This is a big deal and a huge step towards solving a major public health crisis. So obviously, our society just gets together, gives Amy Baxter several billion dollars and says, you're now the CEO of a major pain relief medical device company, right? No, not exactly. And the reason why this is not exactly how it happened is why I wanted to talk to Amy in the first place. This is such a key moment for passion economy businesses. So many of us solve a problem or come up with some beautiful product or service, and we're like, great, job finished. Where's my money? Where's my success? But obviously... Solving a big problem is just the beginning. There are a bunch of steps and a bunch of things you have to do to get from that idea to actually having a successful business. And that's what excited me about Amy. She didn't just have this great idea, she also created a successful company. Now, it's not a multi billion dollar medical device company, but that's because she didn't want to create something so big. She made a lot of choices along the way to be exactly where she is now. So let's get into it
0: after the break. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. <laughs>
1: So today you run pain care labs. How do you go from messing around with a massager and some cold peas in your kitchen to having a business? That
2: visual is not good. (laughs) (laughs) So the first thing was, how do we make a really small massager? So we got a lot of cell phones. We dissected broken machines and toys that vibrate and figured out what orientation works And also, through trial and error, stumbled upon the right frequency to maximally reduce pain. We were just taking apart cell phones and putting them together with duct tape and
1: solder wire. Just at home, you were just... Oh, yeah, Yeah.
2: I mean, in the basement, classic, classic American entrepreneur in the basement with a soldering iron. Good times. So, yeah, so I did that. So I came up with a couple different iterations. So the hard thing was how do you get vibration to transmit cold because gel packs are squishy and they absorb vibration. So that doesn't work.
1: So Wait, so let me – okay, so the vibration works, but if I just buy – go to Walgreens and buy an ice pack, it'll just absorb the vibration and eliminate the benefit. Yep, ah, yep. Interesting.
2: Because it, of... because they put antifreeze in commercial ice packs because they don't want to cause frostbite. But you can do the calculations of how much thermal energy is contained in X quantity of material so that you can then balance it with average skin temperature and see what will cause melting of your packs before you cause frostbite. So we figured out how much cooling we could put into the ice packs so that they wouldn't cause damage, but that they would accomplish the goal in time.
1: Amy knows that she is uniquely qualified to do the research and figure out how to stop this kind of pain using this gate control method. There were very few people on Earth who could figure all of that out. But there are tons of people including billion-dollar medical device companies who could copy whatever it is she figures out as soon as they learn about it. So Amy was very careful not to go to market until her product was fully protected. She focused on patents, of course. She has a patent on any combination of motion and thermal pain relief. She has a patent on that ice pack, the one she designed not to absorb the vibration. And she also went through the FDA regulation process. She got all of that stuff done before any of the big device manufacturers would even know she existed, so they couldn't rip her off. Intellectual property turns out to be a very complicated issue in the passion economy. For some businesses, I think it's overstated if you have a product or service that a very small number of people are going to want, but want passionately, you don't have to worry so much about patent protection. And we'll hear plenty of stories on this podcast about businesses that didn't have to worry about large companies coming in and stealing their ideas because their target market was too small for the big companies to worry about. But in... Cases like Amy's, where your product has universal potential, everybody feels pain, everybody would like to not feel pain, then you really have to worry a lot about competition from companies that have resources thousands, tens of thousands, times whatever it is you have. Now, Amy, of course, was no expert in intellectual property law or even FDA regulation. But luckily for her, she was able to plug into a large ecosystem of professionals who help medical device inventors protect their inventions. Take advantage of those people if you can. Use their skills. When is the first, you know, someone else, a factory, is putting these things together?
2: Yeah. So we did the interim step of getting a small business innovative research grant because as an academic, I wanted to do the research and that was the way that companies can do R&D and make new products. So I became a company so I could get the grant. We got the $1.1 million to do not only the clinical trials, but also the physical making. So we got a manufacturer in China, started with a run of 1000 so we got 600 units that were striped and looked like a bee, because by that time we'd settled on Buzzy as the, the design, and 400 that were black because we figured adults would like black ones. And one of the most profound moments was opening that box from China and seeing row upon row upon row of my idea and research codified into little smiling plastic bees. That was cool. So we got the thousand and we had done pre-orders talking to people in pain management circles. And the initial research that we published made a fund, gave us a grant to do it studies in the emergency room. And we got a study that People just volunteered for, for adults with one of our other prototypes. So we'd already published that. So our first sales really came from people in child life, which are the practitioners at hospitals who help children deal with procedures. So they explain it and they use numbing cream and advocate for all the different pain-fear-focus stuff for pain management, but they got it immediately. They understood the gate theory, this concept of blocking out pain. So they were really our first customers. So we did 1,000 units, sold out of the 600 Bs, got 5,000 Bs, sold out of the 5,000 Bs, and only then did we sell out of the remaining 400 of our initial black ones. And of course, you know what happens with products. Your first thousand look great. The next 5,000, the yellow of the bee looked a little bit green. Some of them had some kind of coating on them that would peel off and it looked like our buzzies had leprosy. Some of them were way too loud, scared the cat. There were uh, all of these additional wrinkles that get tossed in with a physical product that you don't have problems with if you're making
1: an app. So I want to unpack some of what Amy just said. Amy got her funding through grants. And at the risk of repeating myself, I feel like I've said this on almost every episode, I want to really drive this point home. Whatever specific idea you have, there is a good chance that someone somewhere wants to help you with money and advice. They could be an investor, a nonprofit group, a government agency. They are out there ready to give you money and guidance that will send you forward. Use those resources. Don't go it alone. You don't have to. Second, the manufacturing problem. This is something we hear a lot from passion economy entrepreneurs. They're delighted, thrilled, excited to learn. Hey, I don't know anything about manufacturing, but I have this idea, and here's this factory that'll make it for me. Wow, that's so cool, and it's not cheap, but it's not crazy expensive. They'll do it. But then they find out they have to manage that relationship. They have to make sure that they're working with the right factory. That might mean trying out two or three or more factories, talking to other manufacturers and finding out who they use. This capability of regular folks having an idea and getting it manufactured in bulk is both the greatest opportunity of our time and also one of the greatest and most surprising challenges to passion economy entrepreneurs. Another big thing that Amy Baxter had to realize is it's not just solving a problem. It's not just getting your solution protected. It's not just getting your solution protected and made, but you also have to be very thoughtful about who exactly you're selling to and the channels with which you're going to sell to them. Even
2: though we had the company, I kept my day job as a physician until the need that I perceived outweighed the risk of making a company around it. So when it was just buzzy, I kept my day job as a doctor because it wasn't worth becoming a full-time company. However, once we realized we could decrease pain, then we started looking at whether or not there were other benefits of this besides just pain relief, and there are. In seeing the need of the opioid crisis, one of my colleagues used the Buzzy device because he had been in opioid recovery, had to have a knee replacement, and didn't want to use any drugs at all. And when he was able to successfully use our cool pulse technology and use the ice and this oscillatory motion for his physical therapy, and when the pain started after he got home, he didn't take any drugs. And that was a problem that was big enough and non-niche enough to be worth it for me to quit practicing. And I hadn't thought about it in the standpoint of making a business to solve a problem that is worth solving. But the issue of needle pain wasn't a big enough thing to become uh, full-time and to grow the company. But once I realized that this solution had the applications where, yeah, people are paying $700 for pain relievers or the government will pay $1,300 for an electrical stem for bones that aren't healing. and that was where the scaling of the expertise that we had developed really was worth making a company out of.
1: Amy and her team still make Buzzy. It's that device that eliminates pain for children when they get shots. But Amy realized that her tech has so many more uses. So why not target adult consumers, help them with all sorts of pain, the same Gate control mechanisms, the cooling and vibration that distract your nerves, they work on a painful knee, on lower back pain. So Pain Care Labs starts making more devices, something called Duotherm, VibraCool, devices marketed to adults.
2: Had I understood the universality of pain, I think I would have started there first rather than funneling down to this really, really small niche, which is the highest possible hanging fruit. I mean, kids having needle pain, there's nothing more difficult to stop than that. A 60-year-old having pain after her tennis game in her knee, that's easy. And so the solution and who our market is has evolved as we've broadened the understanding of what our solution actually is, because we're in a situation now where Opioids are overprescribed, and people don't want to take pills. And we have equated pharma with health in our country, and people are realizing
1: that. So right. we So you have... kind of messed up by focusing on kids from a business standpoint. Completely.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's really it. Yeah, that.
1: that's a very good. I think there's lessons we can take from that. Those lessons after the break. So let's pick apart her business so we can look for lessons we can use in our own lives and our own businesses. One idea that I like is that you have to be aware of your competition. Who's your competition? And the fact that there is no competition for some entrepreneurs, it's like, yes, I'm the only one doing this. I'm the only one in this space. That might sound great, except that that means there's no market. There's no market for you to enter. It's sometimes better to be different from your competition, but to have actual competition.
2: Right, second to market is always better. So the channels for our initial product, everybody assumed it would be doctors, and then it turns out you really have to know who cares. Well, doctors don't really care about the needle pain because they're not the one giving the injections. Nurses don't care about using a device to block pain because they have to get so many injections in more quickly. Who cares about the needle pain? It's people who are doing injections at home. It's people on IVF. And to a large extent, it's the pharmacy companies that have injectables like Humira and Lovenox and Remicade and any of these biologics that if their compliance goes down, if the patients are not adherent to their schedule, then the drugs don't get sold. So ironically, even though a big focus of where we are with VibraCool is reducing unnecessary drug use, a lot of our biggest customers are pharma companies who are buying Buzzy to make their adults and their chronic kids have an easier job of taking their growth hormone or their IVF or their Enbrel on a regular basis.
1: In an odd way, the mistakes she made early on, those worked out in her favor.
2: The things we did right were mostly unintentional. One was starting in an area that was so disruptive and niche that nobody wanted to rip me off. All of that research in vibration, healing, pain, recovery, it's all in the last 10 years. So now we're in a place where we have 27 randomized control trials. We have FDA clearance. We have a really deep knowledge of how to build these things that the competition that's coming along, who will try to rip us off? Who will go against our patents or who will be unwittingly, they'll figure out what we have proven. Oh, hey, you can block pain using two different stimuli. This is cool. So that's really one thing that we did do right was we established all of our credentials, our FDA, everything else with a device that was in an area where nobody wanted to compete. The other was starting with a price point that was low enough that there was no value to somebody to come in and rip me off because I was underselling what we should have been even based on cost of goods, let alone what the passion economy and the fact that it was something people needed would bear. I'd never thought about it in the way of leveraging passion to command a premium price because one of the things that I struggle with in our business all the time is I want to lower the minimum price of acceptance of the product because I'm passionate about helping the kids who need it. And so it's been a really difficult way to balance the need to keep the business in business because of what we do and the value of it. And the intense desire to relieve suffering in the most needy, which almost goes down and digs around in the the nonprofit area. Because how do you keep the margins as tiny as possible so that the people who need it can afford it while having products that have a margin to leverage the fact that you're unique and fit a really passionately needed niche so that you can stay in business and pay yourself?
1: In the passion economy, pricing is one of the most important factors. It's what allows a passion economy business to thrive. I think a lot of times people starting a business, they figure out how much it costs them to make a thing, how much raw material and time, and then they add some percent as profit. That is not the passion economy way. The passion economy way is to charge based on the value you are creating for those people who value your product the most. That's what differentiates passion economy businesses from commodity businesses, where you're just one company selling a fairly standardized thing that lots and lots of others are selling, and you don't really have much control over the price. But Amy, Dr. Baxter, is doing something different I mean, of course, if she has this beautiful pain relief technology, she could sell it for a fortune to NBA and NFL stars, to really rich parents who want their special angels to not feel the pain of a doctor's needle while all the poor and middle class people's kids do. She could do that. She could charge a fortune, but she has this value herself. She wants to change the human condition, she wants to elevate humanity and help people everywhere, reduce their pain without relying on addictive opioids. That means she has to charge less. But to make a sustainable business charging less and having a smaller profit margin, she has to manufacture a lot more, which means she has to become better and better at managing the manufacturing process. She has to also become very sophisticated in how she gets her products to consumers, the different retail and medical channels that consumers get medical devices through. It's a helpful reminder, a really, I think, beautiful example of something I see a lot in passion economy businesses. They often are values-based, by which I mean there's some, sometimes religious, sometimes emotional, sometimes simply moral value that a founder has. They want to make the world better in a very specific way in all the other things how much you charge for, how many you sell, where you make them, who makes them for you, how you sell them, those all need to reflect your values, and they're all interconnected. But as long as you know what your values are and you know the end goal you're going for, you can do it all correctly. You understand how to change everything. At least you will eventually, because you're definitely going to mess a bunch of things up along the way. But as Dr. Baxter shows, even the mess-ups, as long as you're checking them against the filter of your own value system, are going to get you closer to your goal eventually. Now, the thing Dr. Baxter did that makes her unquestionably a great model for the passion economy is that she solved a really tricky problem. She is this person with an unusual set of desires. She wants to be a healer. She wants to be an inventor. She wants to be a business person. And she wants to be someone who changes the human condition. It's not obvious that you can do all those things in one job. I don't know where you would even apply to get that job. But Dr. Baxter figured it out. She figured out how to create a company and create her own job That was as truly satisfying, soul satisfying, as well as day-to-day fun satisfying as it could possibly be for her.
2: The most flow that I get, the most excitement I get in my job is when I am learning something new, when I'm writing a grant and looking at all of the recent stuff that's been published and then putting together understanding in my brain. That is, I could do that for 24-7 with enough stimulants yeah. and not stop. And the other part is when we have somebody who comes into our office, even though technically you're not supposed to, but comes in and has pain and in five minutes I can change their life. And so I'm still able to change people's lives and fix things. And that is worth more to me than scaling something in... 2,500 stores instead of just putting it in 100. You did nail it. The part of the passion economy that's exciting to me is figuring out new things and how they're going to change somebody's life.
1: Right. And when I first learned about Buzzy and your business, I thought, oh, okay. I always look for where's the intimacy? Where's the special awareness? And I thought, oh, it's a mom who's intimate with the needs of little kids. But It's much, much more than that. It's like you are intimate with like how nerve systems work. Who cares about how nerve systems work? (laughs) And that strikes me as just a very different kind of intimacy than I'm used to thinking about, but that's very interesting to me. And then there's like a market problem or a market challenge of like, okay, (laughs) there's, you know, whatever there is, seven something billion people on the planet. They all have nerve systems. At some (laughs) point, they're all going to have pain. I can't just sell to all of them. So how do I figure out what's the context in which those nerve systems are doing a thing that I know how to address at a moment when those people are in a position to buy a product to address them and will want to buy that product, etc. So it's just a fascinating idea that I feel like I need to kind of process a little bit. That
2: Well, I can tell you that we just finished this exercise where I wrote down 12 different channels for VibraCool from the physical therapy DME distribution to online to sports and wellness to spas to crossfits to all of these different places where we could sell them and then had Everybody in my leadership team rank from one to 10, everything from market size to margin to penetration to thought leadership to distribution channels to barriers of entry to regulatory to blah, blah, blah. And so having done that exercise, we decided that the two top markets for us are... DME, because durable medical equipment tends to have higher quality stuff, things in big box, people just go to a big box to find a solution, but people who go to a DME shop or are looking for DME are going to find the best solution. And let's just, the for solution. those who don't
1: know, when you say big box, you mean you go to...
2: Target, Target CVS. CVS, right.
1: whatever. Durable medical equipment is stuff, I think, isn't it technically supposed to last two years? I forget, but it's you know it's like
2: it's like the difference between buying the compression hose at CVS that may not be that strong or fit you exactly and going to a medical supply shop where they have someone who fits the hose on you and they've got gradations of sizes so that you're wearing something that's really specific to you and that is particular for whatever physical problem you have going on right so those distributors that are selling the higher quality things that are very specific for problems, we have done well with that, and it makes sense because we do have all the science. It's tempting to go for the as-seen-on-TV route. It's tempting to go and mix in with a lot of these devices that don't have the science but have a you know low-frequency 50-hertz motor. But what seems to fit our mission and sweet spot and ability is to go for these direct places that are very focused on medical. And that also includes the post-operative, but that and then the consumers who find us. So our websites, the com, and Amazon, those kinds of distribution things. But those are the two we've winnowed it down to, and it was a very painful exercise. And we may not be right, but that's the light that we have to go on right now.
1: This point is key. I think it's come up in every single episode so far. You will not succeed in this economy if you try to be everything for everyone. That's hard. It's counterintuitive to say, no, I don't want to sell to you. I don't want to sell to everybody. But that is what passion economy businesses need to do. They need to pick their focused niche consumer. You have to solve a specific problem as understood by a specific audience and focus on them and not on anyone else. And like you heard, picking that niche, knowing who to target was not something Amy was great at the first time around. But she's getting there. They are narrowing down this huge potential customer, humans who feel pain, and figuring out where they can be most effective. Finding the unique customers they can serve best. So trial and error. And she's still learning these lessons. She's still trying to figure these things out. Can you explain to me how you know what patients want? You've already explained very well how you know what the body wants, what nerves want. But how do you know, you know, should it be black? Should it be blue? Should it be Velcro? For the non-medical part of it, how do you know what it should be?
2: We are winging that. In theory, we should be doing focus groups and trying different colors and putting it out there, but that has not been our strong suit. I've even recently started thinking one of the things that appeals to people about Buzzy is we could have made... You know the black buzzies didn't sell, right? We we had gone through five thousand six hundred stripy units before we sold out of those four hundred initial black ones. The cute thing made a difference. So I've even thought about the fact that Vibracool, maybe it's got blue sunglasses and looks cool, or maybe a an avatar for Vibracool. But you're right. I mean, there's all sorts of science. Like, well, blue is medical, and you don't want to make a device that's various colors, and there's a lot of green in medical. And so we have taken some of that marketing information. The Pain Care Lab's logo and background now is a forest green because it's something that people believe in that color, and it says medical, but it's not the ubiquitous blue. And we have duotherm, which is blue and orange and black because orange is not used as much, but it definitely says heat, but not in the same way as red. So some of that kind of stuff, we've had consultants and we've dived into it, but otherwise, we've been much more iterative. Let's put out something that's 80% there in terms of form, but it's 100% there in terms of function, and then we will nudge it. I'd love to be more evidence-based on that, but...
1: Right. Well, you have a lot of evidence-based. You have a lot of evidence-based. And I think if you had to talk to yourself in 2006, one piece of advice you could give now is to go into a market that exists. So pain relief for grown-ups with chronic pain exists. That's a really surprising lesson I think for the passion economy that you want competition. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm starting this podcast production company and I was talking to another person who's also starting a podcast production company. And I said, should we just do this together? Like, we're kind of doing the same thing. Should we just partner and do it together? And he said, no, we really need the competition. We really need people to know this is like a new industry. And there's a bunch of us. And I took that to heart. I think some of the hardest things for passion economy entrepreneurs to understand is A, you want competition, and B, you don't want to sell to everyone. You want to pick who you're selling to. right And you want to say no to a whole bunch of categories of customers, some of which you'll pick up later, some of which you'll never sell to at all. But it seems like you're there now. That's what I like. Yeah, well, where were you five years? <laughs> so many of these things, it's like wisdom, you know, you
2: don't appreciate the wisdom until you've already lived through it and recognize it. So maybe even if you'd give me that wisdom... Two years ago, it wouldn't have helped, but that is absolutely right. It's finding out and being true to what you are uniquely good at.
1: That is why this podcast, there is hopefully an Amy Baxter out there listening right now who's like, oh, that's a good note. I should do what Amy Baxter later did and not what she first did. So hopefully we're there five years ago, but for someone else, we're paying it forward.
2: Paying it forward is a Heinlein quote.
1: Is that true, really?
2: Yeah, that was started by Robert Heinlein.
1: The Passion Economy is a Three Uncanny Four production. It's hosted by me, Adam Davidson, and produced by Lena Richards. Our music is composed and performed by Casey Halford. Our sound engineer is Gene Montalvo. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. If you want to learn more about the theories in this podcast, check out my book, aptly named The Passion Economy.